Hey, welcome to today's episode. If you're having issues with your dog's recall or your loose lead walking, or you just want to know how to get your dog more focused on you, then you should download my free engagement guide. It's a brief introduction to the topic of engagement, which I have found to be the one ingredient that makes the biggest impact when it comes to dog training. You can download that for free at www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. Before we start today, we had some recording issues on this podcast, so the quality of my audio is noticeably worse for about 15 minutes, somewhere in the middle. I'm sorry about that, I've done my best to patch it up, and hopefully it won't take away from your enjoyment too much. My guest today is Adrian Weizok. Adrian has worked as a search and rescue dog handler for 18 years. She's the education manager for the National Search Dog Alliance, and is the manager and head trainer at Fido Personal Dog Training. So, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. So, hey Adrian, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for uh, coming on. It's really awesome to get to talk to you. I came across your stuff through Rob, really, through the UK Scent Conference, which uh, Scent Dog Conference, which I'm I'm attending, and I wanted to make sure that I interviewed some of the speakers beforehand um, because I mean the lineup is really really cool. So I'm wondering, how did you get to first meet Rob? How did that happen? Uh, great question. Also, I'm really excited that you're coming to the conference. It's going to be really fun. Uh, Rob and I met when he was taking a certificate course in California on service dog training. And I was doing a master's degree uh, in the same, at the same university in also service dog training. So we just happened to meet on campus and started hanging out and had lunch together. And then eventually a couple years ago, I flew across the pond and hung out with Rob and his wife. And we went over and saw some service dog volunteer training he was doing and had a wonderful time. And we've just been great friends ever since. Oh, wow. Fantastic. That is quite a story as well. I didn't realize that you'd been to the UK before and done. you've actually done some training and stuff then as well. Just a little. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really cool. Did you do a lot of search and rescue stuff while you're over here or? No, it was pretty much just vacation. Um, but I look forward to doing a lot of search and rescue stuff when I'm there now. Yeah, I'm really curious about the search and rescue stuff because I think that all of the scent work, all of the nose work anyway, is it's one of those subjects where even like people that have been training dogs for a while, if they aren't involved in it, they struggle to get their head around it. You know, we were talking about separation yeah. anxiety on, on one of the previous podcasts, and it's a little bit like that as well. You know, like I talked to some trainers and they haven't done scent work before and they don't even know how to get started. And I know that because I was that person at one point, right? <laughs> I've, not done, I've not done search and rescue, but I've done a little bit of scent work and um so i'm curious how did you start out along this kind of journey of scent work and search and rescue which i know are two slightly different things so i started um i found search and rescue because of a dog that i found in a park in 2000 i was out walking around in my neighborhood having just moved to portland oregon and found this very energetic black lab mix in a park, just running around with it, dragging a leash. I assumed she belonged to someone, but no one who was there at the park. So I took her home with me. At the time, I was working as a veterinary technician, or I believe in the UK, you call it a veterinary nurse. And I took the dog home, took her to work with me, put up signs, put up flyers, contacted the shelter, couldn't find anybody who owned this dog. She was a little under a year old and extremely smart and energetic, which means she was getting into a massive load of trouble at my house when I brought her home. So I started looking for something fun that we could do together that would get out all of that energy and use those brain skills that she obviously had a lot of and really needed to utilize. And I stumbled across a website talking about search and rescue and called them up and went and met with the group and eventually... And um, we became certified. She was my first certified search and rescue dog. Uh, she was certified in late 2002, early 2003. And we went on to find 13 people lost in the woods in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a hell of a story. All right, let's backtrack a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you find this dog and 
obviously you you're trying to search for the owner and did you ever find find anyone did you no wow. no 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 comments no one reported her as lost i have a feeling she fell victim to what happens to many dogs which is she was too much for whoever had adopted her and they just decided to abandon her at a park oh wow yeah i mean that sounds probable if you have a dog that's really high energy right like i know that a lot of those dogs like you said you know they don't get on well with people that aren't experienced just too much dog right she so, was a lot of dog right <laughs> <laughs> but that's perfect for the search and rescue stuff isn't it i would imagine absolutely perfect i mean it's in addition to search and rescue i taught her to do a bunch of things because she really she needed a job she needed a job around the house all the time so i taught her how to go get beer out of the fridge for me um she helped do laundry she was my pre-wash for the dishwasher Oh, wow. uh, all those good dog tasks <laughs> you know it's uh, you reminded me though because i've been through something very similar with a client recently i went to see young labrador again and um just way too much way too much dog for the family right and um anyway i gave them some training to do and and i heard back from them about a month later and they said you know actually we can't keep this dog too much, right? It's just too much for us. And I had said on the session that this is sort of dog that police or some kind of working situation would just love. And they said, Nick, could you know, were you serious about that? Could you investigate that for us? And um, so I did. I investigated it f for them. And Rob actually helped me out a little bit, gave me some advice. And um, so our local police went and went and did an assessment with this dog. And they're uh, they're looking into taking him so you know they they're that's taking fantastic a, they're taking him on a training course i'm really interested in uh in having him go through the whole process so i was so chuffed about that i was so, <laughs> happy. I was so happy to see a dog that is you know just struggling in a pet home right like just too much not getting the stimulation that it needs not because the owners are horrible or anything just because it's just it's your wrong home right um, yeah and those high drive dogs uh, are they, that's what they need. They need, they need a job and your average family doesn't have the capacity or capability to have that kind of working dog in their home. And that's the thing as well, because I think that some people feel like, you know, like there's still this mentality in the dog world where if you rehome a dog, then you've given up on the dog. You're an evil person. Um, but like these people, lovely people, right? It's just a wrong dog, wrong home. And um, in a way, I would rather someone say this isn't the right dog for my home than say than try to do that square peg round hole solution where they're trying to take this high drive working line dog and make it into a family pet without that's how dogs end up being super neurotic later in life or self mutilation, you know, all kinds of those you know, people say, Oh, my dog's five and everything was great and now all of a sudden she's falling apart. It's because they've been forcing this dog to live a life that it didn't want to live. Yeah, what a great point. Do you come across a lot of those dogs working around search and rescue do you get a lot of dogs that were maybe were too much for their owners and it's uh, it's how a lot of people end up coming to search and rescue in my personal experience they get this dog and they think oh you know everyone says shepherds are so smart um and then you have a working dog and you need to find a job for it and that's how you know a very good friend of mine who's sitting in this room with me um actually found her way to search and rescue that exact same way she got a dutch shepherd and then realized this is a dog who needs a job. Yeah, yeah, and those breeds—the Dutch Shepherds, the Malinois, and all that kind of even Springers and Spaniels of all sorts, yeah. right? Yeah, like, and I have... think I think Spaniels suffer a lot because people get a smaller dog and they think, "Oh, small dogs are great." You know, he'll just he'll just hang out with me, but just because they're smaller in size doesn't mean they're any smaller in drive or interest for work. What kind of breeds do do you see in the uh, search and rescue? Is there one that is kind of dominating the search and rescue world? Um, a lot of shepherds and a lot of labs. Really? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm, there's often kind of a mismatch between what people think their dog should be like and what the dog actually needs to be like uh, in order to be successful at search and rescue. I think a lot of people believe that if you have this crazy wild dog, he's going to be great at search and rescue. But search and rescue comes down to any kind of dog training. It's motivation. You know, what 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 motivates your dog? And does your dog have the ability to develop a level of concentration that means that they can be working away from their handler for four hours and still know what the behavior chain is and know exactly what they're supposed to be doing? So that takes a smart, 
high drive dog who can really think their way through problems. Right. So you're still looking for that kind of high drive because you do come across dogs that like we've when we do like pet tracking and all of that kind of stuff where we're not actually doing it for any kind of real reason other than just a bit of fun. You get dogs that are good at tracking, but they're like slow. Um, They're not, you know, like they're not what you might think of as a working dog, you know, where you got the tail moving all the time. They're just full of energy. Right. It's more of like a slow methodical search. Do you just are those dogs not suitable for search and rescue? Are we looking more for like a high energy dog? I would say a lower energy dog can still perform the job, um, but you just have to look into. Um, there's several factors. There's nothing. There's no reason why a dog who works slow can't be very effective at doing a job in search and rescue. Um, if you're talking about doing tracking or trailing, that's a pretty time sensitive thing usually. Um, so you would want a dog who's pretty fast on the trail if you're actually going to do deployable search and rescue with a dog. Uh, in terms of air scent and wilderness work, which is what my most of my experience is in, um, there's plenty of dogs who are more methodical, but then you're really starting to increase the amount of time that you are out in the field searching, which means that a dog who moves slower makes for a slower search, which means that dog might get tired faster. Um, so if you have an, a deployable search dog who is a little bit slower, we just set up search sectors differently for that kind of dog. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of personalities. Oh, wow. That's absolutely fascinating. Now we're getting onto the meat of the search and rescue stuff. This is <laughs> exciting. So can you explain a little bit of the differences there? You mentioned like air scenting, tracking and trailing, uh, wilderness scent. C- can you explain what what are the what is all of this stuff right like what's the difference sure thing yeah a lot of there's a it's really easy to misunderstand all of these things so um air scent is the same thing as wilderness air scent uh, for the most part that means dogs are looking for the smell of a human as it drifts across the air um, we use this mostly in, that's why it's called wilderness, because we use it in non-populated areas where there aren't uh, usually other people or buildings around. Um, what dogs are actually scenting is what we call rafts. Um, there's about somewhere around sixty to 80,000 rafts coming off of your skin every second, every moment of the day. Uh, they're microscopic particles that move kind of like fog or like smoke. They drift around, they eddy, they move in pools, they follow water. Um, and sunshine and weather conditions can affect how they move quite a bit. It's actually one of the things I'm going to be talking about quite a bit at the conference is the travel of scent and different scenarios for how we understand how scent moves. So an air scent dog will search a large area. Um, When I was in the Pacific Northwest, our search area was 160 acres. Um, So that's a huge area, and we were expected for my exam to be able to cover that in four hours and find a person who's lost there and not visible to the searcher. Um, That is, it's probably what most people think of when they think of search and rescue is that style of search. Um, Okay. Um, I'm really, how how do you cover that much ground? Like, presumably you're not walking all of it. Like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you take a look at a topographical map of what your search area looks like and you find a way to walk it in a grid. And how far apart your grid lines are, are determined by weather conditions, ground conditions, and how far your dog searches away from you. So the more area your dog covers, the less area you have to cover. So here's another thing. Uh, When you're walking this ground, are the dogs following a particular scent or are they just trying to find the scent? Uh, That's a great question, but you'd have to ask a dog. Um, (laughs) They, by the time that you're a deployable team, they know what their job is and they know what they're doing out there. So they will often follow a particular scent um, with, with Tilly Chicken, the dog I was telling you about the first one that I found. Sometimes she would be out of my sight and I would have no idea where she is for 20 minutes, a half an hour at a time. Oh, so this isn't like the dog's not on a line or anything then? Nope. Totally off leash. So how do you know if they found someone then? They come and tell me. Oh, wow. Okay, this is... <laughs> okay, presumably your dog doesn't talk English. What, what, did it, what, does it, what does your dog do? So there's a couple of different indications that are common. Um, uh-huh. One is called a bang, where a dog jumps up and kind of punches you right in the gut with their oh, paws. Wow. Uh, this is very lassie, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Another option <laughs> is um, a bark indication. Uh, okay. 
I had for Tilly Chicken, I had a toy that I hooked on my belt and uh-huh. found someone. She would come up and grab the toy and pull me towards the person. Oh, wow. This is this is amazing. So walk me through. Okay. So someone calls you. They say, you know, we've got someone missing in this area. Is that how it starts? Yeah. Well, usually they we would get deployed through a local sheriff's or police department. But um, so the the local authorities would call and say this person is missing. And um, the kind of information we want to know is, do we know where they're plan- where they were planned on going? And uh, we want to find what we call the PLS, the point last seen. Uh, and then we can use some information from uh, other people who have been lost to figure out what is lost person behavior under this scenario. So, you know, we know, for example, how, you know, people with dementia tend to follow this kind of pattern. Small children follow this kind of pattern. Adults tend to do this. And all of that is documented. We use all of that information in conjunction with the point last seen to determine what our um, highest probability search areas are. Okay, and... that that sounds amazing in itself. So, <laughs> so I, okay, well, give me a, uh, maybe like a brief description. What does what does a child a child do that an adult doesn't? Children tend to walk more randomly or just sit down. Um, adults will follow a ridge line, uh, try to follow a path, um, or make themselves a shelter. And people with dementia tend to walk in circles. To be honest, um, so it. You know, you're you're going to set up your search areas very differently, and the smaller a child is, the less distance they're likely going to travel. So, an adult, on average, will travel anywhere on a trail from two to four miles per hour. They usually pick one direction and start moving in that direction. Um, whereas children are going to be usually found within one square mile of point last seen. Um, elderly people are going to be generally found within a half a mile of point last seen. Okay, so. So you've got the call, you've, you, you're looking, you looking at all those kind of data points and then you just drive out there and download some maps, um, load up my GPS, grab the dog, grab the gear and head out. One thing that you see a lot in kind of like programs and, and stuff is like the, per, the trainer or the handler or whatever you want to call them showing the dog, like a bit of the person's clothing all that kind of stuff. Is that Hollywood or is that actually something that is done? That is how you would get a tracking or a trailing dog, the scent of a person who is lost. Uh, That's scent discrimination. Air scent dogs do not discriminate between the different kinds of people they're looking for. They're trained to find any human in their search area. Scent discriminating dogs who do tracking or trailing, um, those dogs are looking for the scent of a particular person. That's, it takes a little longer and is a little more detailed to train a tracking or a trailing dog. Okay, so then if you have, um, if someone's gone missing, do you have a mixture of the two types, or do you it, just? It absolutely depends upon what resources are available and um, whether or not you know. We often get called out three days after someone's been missing. Wow. So although we might have a point last seen, we don't know where they went. Um, I guess if you like know where their car is or something, then it would make sense to use like a tracking dog. Exactly. Then we might be able to use a tracking dog to go from uh, point last seen being a car in a parking lot to point last seen being somewhere on a trail. Um, and that's really going to help us narrow down exactly where we want to be looking for someone. How do people end up going missing in these kind of places? Do they just, I mean, wh- what happens? Do they get disoriented? Do they lose their map or something? Oh, yeah, all different kinds of things. Most of the wilderness areas we have here in the U.S., you don't get very good cell phone coverage. And a lot of people in this modern electronic world feel like as long as they have their cell phone with them, they'll be fine. Um, So someone gets out of cell phone range and maybe gets lost or doesn't know where they're going and is just taking their best guess. Um, It's really easy for them to turn down the wrong trail. Um, there's an example that I use that I'll, I'll actually be talking about in the conference of a guy who was going on a long run in Yosemite National Park. Um, the cloud level dropped really dramatically, so he suddenly couldn't see where he was going and basically took a wrong turn on the trail and ended up lost. Right, so... Um, we so also what, get a lot what? of hunters who are out in the woods um, wandering around. They're paying attention to where the deer are not to where they're going um, or people who do things like mushroom hunters. Um, it was uh, true in the Pacific Northwest a lot. A lot of people go out looking for really tasty mushrooms and they're busy looking down. They're not paying attention to where they're going. 
how frequently do people get lost in these kind of forests? Um, it depends upon the forests themselves, but I would guess a few a month. Oh, wow. That's a lot of people, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, so are you getting deployed for all of those cases or just... It depends. Um, uh, for example, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, we would get deployed pretty regularly if it was for children. Um, so for kids or elderly people who have um, a low chance of survival, they're much more likely to call out a dog team more quickly. Um, for adults, people tend to wait a little bit and see, oh, you know, maybe he's cheating on his wife and we're going to find him in a motel in Vegas. Or, you know, oh, they, wow. <laughs> they just tend to be a little bit more cautious about calling out a dog team unless there's a good reason. So with the, um, yeah, I can imagine with the children it would be particularly concerning because... I mean, how do, so it makes sense how adults get lost, right? Like you were saying about reliance on the phone and stuff. How does a child end up getting lost in a, in a forest? It's pretty easy for when everyone's out having a good time walking on trails or, you know, exploring nature for a member of a group to wander off and people not to notice for a few minutes. Um, one of the first searches I went on for a child that was with Tilly was a school group that had gone to hot springs. And as everybody was walking back to the bus, when they got back to the bus and counted all the kids, they realized that one was missing. One kid got separated from the group and got lost. Right. Uh, it turns out that that kid also had, um, he had some cognitive difficulties and had limited vision and hearing. So it, he only had to be about 10 feet away from other people to, real, to not be able to see them. Uh-huh. So how did that end up going? Did you manage to find him? We did. Mm-hmm. We found him. Um, they called out the dog. It was about six hours before they called out the dog teams. Um, I was one of the first ones on scene because I happened to live close by. Um, Tilly Chicken found him in 40 minutes from the start of our search. Wow, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point as well. How long do these things typically last for? There must come a point where you think, oh, are we going to find this person because I've been out here for X amount of time and. Yeah, so it's all set up, you know, once we have decided where the point last seen is, um, we set up search sectors that are usually based on the geography of the area and what's going to be easiest to search. Um, If I'm deployed, I'm not going to be the only team who's deployed. We're going to have probably four or six, see how many people are available. Um, Each team will take one of the more high probability sectors. Well, after every person and dog searches a sector, we usually try to build in um, one or more hours of downtime because the dog's going to need a break and the person's going to need a break both physically and kind of mentally, emotionally. And we will, on a long search, we will often do kind of an eight hours on, eight hours off, um, just constantly searching areas until we have exhausted um, all of the higher probability areas and start to move to low probability areas. At the same time, we'd also be utilizing what we call ground pounders. Um, so that's teams of humans who um, maybe 20 of them will walk in a line just a few feet apart and walk through areas that are lower probability areas. So in case someone ran through there and dropped a hat or lost a piece of equipment, um, we're hoping we can either find someone that way or find clues about where they went that way. It blows my mind that you can uh, you can have dogs working for eight hours, right? Like that's that's mad, isn't it? Yeah, and and they it takes a toll on them, just like it takes a toll on us. And um, one of the things that I advocate the most for search and rescue handlers handlers is to really pay attention to the toll it takes on your dog, not just the toll it takes on your body. Yeah, do you mean like um, mental health wise, or just exactly? Yeah. both mentally and physically. Well, that struck me when I was looking into your background, right? Like being a, a vet tech and then going out and doing search and rescue. Like those are two jobs that I would imagine are really stressful. You get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there a lot of like PTSD and that kind of stuff in search and rescue? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I imagine that you end up finding a lot of people that are dead or they're in a bad situation. Yeah, it's not, or the, you know, I've had several times I've had people pull guns on me because we run into a shed in the middle of nowhere that someone's using as a drug lab. And I walk through wearing clothes emblazoned with sheriff and my dog says sheriff. And it definitely takes some time to convince them that I don't care about whatever they're doing. I'm just looking for a person. Wow. Okay. You have to tell us more about that. (laughs) 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 So how do you talk yourself out of that situation? Because I mean, 
Yeah, wow, that's that's scary. Uh, very carefully. That's pretty much it. Because <laughs> surely uh, they can't really think, you know, they must think that you're going to go back and tell someone where they are or... Yeah, uh, it takes a lot of negotiation. And especially when they realize that the dog is doesn't care about what they have, um, that's the biggest bargaining chip we have. Is if we were really looking for you, this dog would care a lot more about what you're doing here. Um, but this dog does not care about what you're doing here. So we just want to find a person. Here's what the person looks like. Please contact us if you find them. Otherwise, we would like to leave, and we will tell no one that you are here. So that is it. I mean, so you're talking about like people that are creating drugs out there. It's not like weed or stuff, is it? So. No, because they would probably just be napping. Um, it was uh, this in the Pacific Northwest. They had a big problem with meth labs, so methamphetamines. And they would just do that in the middle of the woods. Mm -hmm. wow. In like a shack. So later, I eventually attended some trainings through the sheriff's department where they helped you kind of identify what potentially dangerous structures look like. So that is like a shack that looks like it's falling apart but has really expensive security cameras and lighting on the side. That's a, that's a uh, building to avoid. Yeah, I guess they would be worried that maybe people are going to rob them or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is the probability of finding these people alive? Like, what kind of percentage are we looking at? It absolutely depends on what the person has with them, what their age is, what their capacity and capabilities are intellectually and physically, where they were lost, what time of day. Um, you know, there's, there's one million factors in the U.S. We have uh -huh. a lot of extreme wilderness. And so if someone picks a direction to start walking and they pick the wrong, the wrong direction, um, they could end up, you know, passing away because of the elements before human teams could ever get to them. You also have like big predators, don't you? Like bears and stuff. Yeah. They kind of play a factor as well. You, Absolutely. Hacked by bears and wolves. Or... Yeah. Big factors, not only for the people who are lost, but for those of us who are going to look for them. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine <laughs> that would add a bit of fear. Um, yeah, and I don't know how frequent that happens. Those kind of like attacks on, on well, people. And, um, I'll tell you a search and rescue joke. So um, when new people join the team, um, we usually tell them um, make sure that people can understand the difference between black bears and brown bears. Um, so brown bears are uh, black bears rather are smaller. Um, and we tell people to wear bells and maybe something like black pepper so that they're loud and the bears can smell them coming. Um, and you can recognize the scat or the droppings of black bears because they primarily eat berries and small rodents. So you can watch for the berries and the small rodents um, in their scat, little, the leftovers of it like fur and small bones along with berry seeds. Uh, brown bears are much larger. Uh, brown bears are also called Kodiaks or grizzlies. And so they're almost twice as big as black bears. And we recommend the same bells and, and pepper to be worn. You can recognize the brown bear scat because it has bells and black pepper in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's mad. That's mad about the bears. I, I, I think that would be constantly on my mind if I was, uh, if I was searching for people out in the woods. You know, I'd be having every noise I'd be thinking about bears. I mean, that's one of the things that at least, well, I'm, I know that it's a good thing that you have that kind of wildlife out there, but um, at least when you go on a dog walk or you go out in the woods, you're uh, not worried about getting eaten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, bears don't want to hang out with us. So one of the best things we can do to avoid bears is be loud. Um, the most dangerous bear is a bear that you stumble across, especially a mama bear that you stumble across. Um, so when we're out on searches, our dogs have bells, we are calling names of people. We are not quiet. It is very clear that we're coming. So we have very few run-ins with bears um, because they, they know that we're there and they don't want any part of it and take off. Have you had it before where you've been out to find people that have been attacked by bears? Yeah. Yeah. I... And then you usually, if you find them, you find um, parts. Right, really. Because yeah, I know that, that like you see the advice, which is, you know, play dead and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know how many people actually survive bear attacks. I wouldn't know either. Um, but I, I have occasionally, not often, um, found remains of, of people who were clearly attacked by a large animal. 
because we have not just bears, but things like jaguars and, and cougars. We have big cats um, as well as as well as bears. What about like coming across water and stuff? Because that's always like the classic where you see again, you know, in Hollywood, like if you want to dodge the search dog, just run down the river or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. How, what's the truth behind that? Where'd you go with uh, that? My, as my grandmother would say, that's 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Uh, <laughs> since the dog is trailing the scent of all of those rafts that are coming off of your body the whole time, um, they can get slightly confused by water, but they'll, they have the absolute capability to run right across that, that small body of water and find you. Your scent sits on the water just like it will sit on the ground. It's just that it tends to move down the waterway with the water. But dogs who are experienced in knowing that uh -huh. uh, will happily traipse right across the water and find your scent on the other side. What about like deep water that involves swimming? Um, that just that depends on the dog. A lot of our dogs, uh, as an advanced specialty, have uh, water training as their advanced specialty. So that's um, one thing I was working on with my Labrador before I retired her is putting a dog in a boat and having them find either people who have passed away who are under the water or be able to um, find where someone might be along a shoreline. Also, the other one that comes to mind, another one of these kind of like maybe like myths is um, climbing trees, right? Like trying to get up off the ground. Is that something, yeah. that, throws, is that, something that throws dogs off? No, we specifically train, um, we call it an elevated problem. We specifically train for an elevated victim who is out of reach of the dog. Are these things that you come across very often when you're doing searches, people that have climbed trees or anything? Not usually. Um, we tend to find elevated victims more when they've been attacked by an animal. Um, big cats will drag their victims up into trees. Oh my God, um, this gets more and more horrific. <laughs> uh, animals like, like cougars will will drag their kill up into a tree so that's that tends to be more when we would find that or um, cases of suicide right yeah no that makes sense what it's a if i say if i ask you um what is maybe your most interesting search does, does anything come to mind particularly um i mean there's there's a million of them there was one i can think of it's a little gruesome um uh, there was a uh, about a 13, 14 year old boy who had gone missing. Um, his parents, he lived near the woods and his parents said he came home, but then they went to check on him before bed and he was gone. And the most intense part about that search, it was next to what's called the Deschutes National Forest, which is a very wild forest in central and southern Oregon. Um, that search went on for about five days, as I recall, that I was out there searching and it was pouring rain the entire time. Um, about 40 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. That's about eight degrees Celsius. Um, so cold, but not freezing. Just really, really, uh, really, really cold, constant downpour. Um, so I'm wearing probably 60 pounds of gear um, between the fireman's boots, skaters, rain pants, Gore-Tex outfit, hats, plus my pack with all of my water and all the stuff I need on it. And there was not a flat piece of ground in that entire park, as far as I can tell. That sounds miserable. I was, it, it was a little bit, but it's a, it makes for an exciting challenge. And I remember going up this probably 40, 45 degree slope. So I had to do it kind of on hands and knees. And at one point my foot, like, I put my foot on something to brace it and I go to step on it and it just breaks. And I realize that what I'm climbing on top of is actually a river that just has so much fallen debris on top of it. But that's what I've been walking on. Oh, there was a wow. rushing river directly underneath me. Uh -huh. Wow. It took five days to find the kid. We did find him. He had committed suicide. Oh my gosh. Because the conditions were so difficult um, for them to get an extraction team in, uh, my dog and I camped next to him for three days. Wow, that's extremely sweet of you. I, when you said about the river, I thought that you were going to say that he had, that's what had happened to him. He'd gone through into the river. Yeah, it's only my foot went into the river, thankfully <laughs> no one else. <laughs> wow, it's this is a very intense thing to do. I mean, what motivates you to get out there and, and search for people when you, you know, it sounds like, you know, we've been talking about animal attacks, finding remains, finding dead people. Like this sounds like 
extremely emotionally tolling, upsetting job to do. Yeah, so what, it can be. What what's the motivation for you to go out there and do it? Um, I have the skills to do it, and I feel like if I have the skills, then I am morally obligated um, to help because there's so many people who don't. Um, I know how to train the dogs to do it. I'm a trained first responder, um, and so I, I'm really driven to help people because there aren't that many of us um, who can who can and also will. It's. I think it's. I really like people to appreciate how amazing our dogs are, and how much they have, and what you can really get. What kind of partnership you can really build. Um, it was search and rescue that convinced me to quit my job as a veterinary technician and become a dog trainer because that level of partnership and trust, I don't know anywhere else you can find it aside from a working dog relationship. It's, it's really incredible to watch them learn so much and blossom and be able to communicate on that level. Yeah. It's uh it's, well, I think that anyone that works with dogs, you know, f- f- can share your uh, feelings there, right? Like, cause, um, I think we we've all had our own kind of individual realizations of how amazing dogs are, and I think Search and Rescue is a really amazing, <clears throat> particularly amazing example of that. You yeah, know, like when you say you're getting getting out there for like eight hour days, right? Like that just seems mad to me. You know, like how many of us are training our dogs, and you know, you train for more than fifteen minutes, and the dogs like. Oh, God, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm cooked, right? So the fact that you can get eight hours out of a dog, I know you said you had a break there as well, but like the fact that you can be working the dogs for that long is just, it's just unreal to me. Well, and that's part of, it's not just the partnership. It's also how much the dogs love the work. When you get the right dog and the right work for them, mm-hmm. it's magic. And just like us, you know, when, when you find the job that you truly love, you're never going to work it up ever, Right. Um, and I think the same thing is true for the dog. Um, they just love running through the woods and playing this fun game that turns out that it helps people. And right. making sure we stay positive and that dogs love it and that it continues to be fun is what helps them to work those long days when they're needed. Can you tell when the dogs have kind of got on scent, so to speak? You know, they've absolutely. You know, they've maybe they they've got onto the scent of the person. Oh yeah, absolutely. You can you can tell the second they catch it, their whole demeanor changes, their body language changes, their intensity changes. Um, that's one of the first things that we watch for in uh, being able to train our dogs well is to watch that change of behavior. And once they're on scent, is is that like once you're they're on scent, do you get the feeling that maybe you're going to come to some kind of conclusion soon after or can it still be hours before? It could still be hours. They might be catching the scent of the person as they walked through the sector we're in. Um, Just because my dog catches scent, I can't leave. I I still walk my path that I'm planning on walking. Oh, wow. That's interesting. It's only when the dog comes and tells me that they have a find that I will leave my, it's called an azimuth. That's the direction that you're walking. Um, so what that's... do you do, say that your dog finds scent, takes you right towards the border of your search quadrant, what do you do at that point? Do you, do you tell if my dog is If my dog is taking me beyond my search sector, um, but is clearly indicating a find, I'm just going to radio into the rest of the team and let them know that I'm leaving my sector to follow my dog. Ah, uh, okay. So it is, that makes sense. It's not like someone else is going to pick up the scent on the other side or anything like that. No, we don't. We don't like have a baton we can pass off to the next team. <laughs> that, I'll just follow my dog, but I'll let other people know that I'm leaving my sector and I'm going into another sector. Um, we're communicating with uh, the coordinator of the search by radio about everything that we're doing. Um, I am never out there alone. I always have what we call a field support person with me. Um, so as the dog handler, my job is to look for the person and and pay attention to my dog. Uh, the field support is really the the magic behind how we make sure it all happens and happens safely. And that person is the one who makes sure that I stay on my grid, I stay on track, that I've searched my whole search sector, um, communicates with our base camp about what I'm finding, if we find articles. So that would be like hats, gloves, anything that we think a person might have left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, my field support is the one who's going to radio in about about finding an article and seeing if it maybe belongs to our missing person. Um, so the the field support is really the magic behind the behind the team. When you find an article, does the dog indicate on that? 
It depends upon the dog's training. Um, we like our more advanced dogs to be able to indicate on an article if possible, but um, that's only if they are um, scent specific dogs. So if they have been trained as a tracking or a trailing dog to find a particular scent of a person, they will indicate on that article. If it is an air scent dog, some air scent dogs will alert on articles, but for the most part, we won't know who it's from because air scent dogs are not scent specific. Mm-hmm. We'll just know that it's a hat and we'll take a picture of it, note its GPS location, and find out if whether or not we think it belongs to the missing person. Right. So is it air scent dogs that you have? Uh, yes. I, I actually have one air scent dog and one scent specific tracking trailing. Oh, wow. Okay. So do you have like a preference for um, maybe training? I know that you said, did you say that the trailing dogs take a little bit longer? Yeah. Um, on average, um, start to finish training a wilderness air scent dog is about 18 months to two years. Um, training a tracking and trailing dog can take two and a half. Um, it's just, I mean, I love all the different kinds of scent puzzles. I don't like one better than the other. Um, you know, when the weather's crappy, I really like training my trailing dog better because I don't have to spend so much time outside. Um, but for the most part, there, there's different things that are enjoyable about each part. Um, my shepherd is learning gun source residue detection as well as uh, man tracking so he can find guns, bullets, anything used to clean guns um, and follow the trail of a person. Right now he's at about 300 yards with three turns. He can follow somebody. Once you get started with dogs and scents, it's really hard to stop. You just want to keep going and keep finding new things and new ways to train and new stuff to try. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I love the uh, scent work stuff. Like I've done a lot of scent work, but I've never done search and rescue and um tracking i've done a little bit of tracking but nothing to anywhere near the level of the stuff that you're talking about yeah i'm sure that you have some really interesting ways of training it as well hot dogs um i i started with um tiny 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 little hot dogs every step and then moved to every other step and every third step and then helping him use hot dogs to help him learn how to make turns um and it didn't it's worked well for him yeah, absolutely. And and that's just a process of like classical conditioning, isn't it? Like if you follow mm-hmm. the scent, then you're going to get good stuff. Yeah. And I guess you're forming an association there, aren't you? So the dog's learning. I mean, once you start to space out the sausage or even eliminate the sausage, you're getting to the point where the dog is having to follow human scent in order to get the reward. Yeah, exactly. And it continues. It makes it rewarding and fun for them. Um, my shepherd is a ball crazy dog, so I used the hot dogs on in order for him to understand the detail work that I wanted him to do. But he knows that the end of every track is a ball mm-hmm. and that he's going to get to play ball until he cannot stand up anymore. <laughs> oh, lovely. So <laughs> with, the, um, with the air scent dogs, you were saying that you, you start out just by running off and hiding. Was it hiding a tennis ball? Was that right? It depends on what the dog's motivated by. Um, right. you know, but hiding some kind hiding, of reward. Hiding as a, a reward. As and opposed to... It's a person who's holding the reward who hides. Oh, who hides. okay. As opposed to with the tracking dogs, you're starting out with the sausage on the trail and just maybe like starting up with really small tracks and then building it up. Is that right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. That's interesting because I know nothing. <laughs> and then the training that I did, when I started playing about with these ideas... I was, um, because I'd been taught the sausage method, I started out with the dogs doing it. I like like that. I think we should just call it the sausage method. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's a better name out there, (laughs) Um, but I don't know it because I'm just showing my inexperience here. And then, um, and then, so I'd start out, get the dogs to a decent kind of level with the sausage method. (laughs) And then, um, and then I would get to the point where the dog can do corners and stuff. And then we would transition to having someone hiding with a toy or whatever. But I like your method because basically you're starting out, you're skipping a step, aren't you? You know, like yeah. you're you're getting the dog used to just finding someone straight away. And I guess it makes sense because there's a difference there between the dog following ground scent and following air scent. Is that right? Yes. And, and this, oh, the whole scent theory stuff, I think, is really complicated for well it's one of those things i really struggle with to be honest like i love doing the tracking and stuff but when we start talking about scent theory i really struggle to get my head around (laughs) right it's really hard to visualize something that you can't actually see isn't it yeah but there are some tools that can help you visualize what actually happens with scent 
Um, I know in the US, we are crazy about fireworks. I don't know how much you guys have them in the UK, um, but you can get like a scent bomb, like a smoke bomb. You know, we can buy those in a little store here and light it off and then it just blows smoke and you can watch where that smoke goes. And that's a really good indicator of uh, what the scent does. Scent moves very similar to fog or smoke if you could sort of combine that with water um, in that it will trail over things. You can also use um, like baby powder, talcum powder. Um, I usually keep that in my search and rescue kit because if I can't obviously feel wind direction, a little bit of sprinkling, a little bit of talc powder and watching where it goes will give you a really good indication of what's going on with the wind. So what conditions are good for um, search and rescue? Let's just say that. What conditions are good for search and rescue and what conditions are bad? Okay, so bad for search and rescue, uh, definitely um, high noon. So that is sun beating down on all surfaces evenly. That creates what's called a chimney effect. So all the scent goes straight up. None of it travels anywhere. Um, if you have high noon and a dead wind, it's going to be difficult. Your dog's going to have to get right on top of something before they can smell it. Wow. Uh, kind of late morning is really nice. And when it's the, the sun is at a steep angle, you still have a lot of area that hasn't seen the sun yet that day. So that scent is going to be hanging out there. A nice like five mile an hour breeze, like a little gentle breeze. So that scent can move a little bit and the dog can find it as it gets a little further away. Yeah, I've heard that like um, morning dew is good. Is that right? Yeah, it really holds all the scent. Yeah, just kind of like that little bit of moisture. But then I, I also heard that if the track's been laid and then rain comes down on the track, that that can make it more difficult considerably more difficult because it's just washing away a whole bunch of the scent particles and the other things that dogs are going to use for clues in order to find the person they're looking for. So then presumably when you're searching for someone that's been missing for multiple days, I mean that, I mean, it's hard to even fathom that the dogs are able to do that, isn't it? Yeah. uh, But they are. I mean, a dog has (laughs) the capability to smell one rotten apple in a million barrels of apples. Uh And they have a fantastic ability to scent not only from having those giant noses, but having that giant olfactory bulb in their brains. So what we're asking for a dog to do when we're asking for them to either whether it's doing um, competition scent work or search and rescue is we're asking them to find the highest concentration of an odor. So although there might be other odors around, if someone's been missing for a few days, um, we're still asking them to find the highest concentration of that odor. And they're going to keep looking until they find it. What's the most amazing search you've seen a dog do from a a scent theory perspective? Hmm, That's a good question. That would probably be a a train crash um, that I was part of a search on where we had about half the passengers either missing on the train or somewhere near the train. It was out in a pretty serious wilderness area. And so it took a long time for rescue crews to get there. And then there were passengers who were unaccounted for. Um, So we started going off on a search and it immediately started, of course, because no one gets lost in nice weather, pouring rain. And it was a combination of rain and snow um, we call sleet happens a lot around um, around the wetter areas of, of the country. So that means that not only is there high humidity, so a lot of the scent stays exactly where it is, um, you also have snow, which covers up scents. Um, rain, it doesn't cover the scents, it just washes them out, where the snow will sit on top of them and make it difficult for um, dogs to smell anything underneath. Wow, that's amazing. And were you quite successful or was that a... a bit of a write-off uh we found 12 people who had stumbled uh, off the train and had all found various places to hole up and wait um thinking that it was they were afraid that the train was gonna explode after oh, wow what should you do from a from if say that someone say that you get lost in the woods or in one of these areas what should you do from a human perspective what should people do stay put really Stay put, find a safe place and wait. Oh, that's interesting because I guess that the fear is, is someone going to come looking for me? Right. And I mean, it's knowing that, is that what I would do? Who knows? If I got lost in the woods, I'd probably think I can find my way out of here. And then I might end up walking in circles and doing all the same things that everybody does when they get lost. 
Um, but if people are coming to find you, just stay put. You're making it harder for everyone if you are wandering aimlessly around in the woods. Yeah, I imagine that. Um, I imagine like in that situation with the train, that can be almost a bit frustrating. You know, where it'd be like, God, guys, <laughs> yeah. could you not have wandered away from the railroad track or the, whatever? The single place where we know to find you, yes. <laughs> Uh, that being Jim- said, if there's a trail nearby, um, walk down a trail, but pick one direction and stick with it. And if there's, you know, if the trail splits, then you might want to stay at, at the intersection of two trails. Where can people find out more about you? Obviously, you're going to be at the UK Scent Dog Conference. Um, so that's certainly worth checking out. I'll make sure I include that in the show notes. But where can people find out more about... Well. Two things. Where can people find out more about search and rescue if they want to get involved? But also, where can they find out more about you and the stuff that you're doing? Uh, I They can find out more about me. My paid life is working as a dog trainer and managing a dog training facility. Um, that's called Fido Ferndale. Um, Fido in Ferndale. So you can find us at FidoPersonalDogTraining.com. You'll see more about me there. Um, if you're interested in getting into search and rescue, I would recommend looking into what is going on around you. In the U.S., there's a couple of big national search and rescue organizations, um, one of which I'm the education manager for, the National Search Dog Alliance. Um, there's a few others. Um, so, and I'm not sure as much about how it works in the U.K., but I would imagine it's very similar. Um, get a, See who is doing national certifications in your area. Uh, look them up. Find more. Ask a local police officer. Um, everyone who does search and rescue that I know is excited to talk about it and is interested in sharing that with people. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's uh, really good to find out more about search and rescue and find out more about you ahead of your uh, talk at the Scent Dog Conference. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I don't know if it's full yet, but we are doing a, a few day workshop on search and rescue through IMBT afterwards. You can find out more at imbt.co.uk, uh, I believe. Brilliant. Fantastic. I'll, I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Well, Great. thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It was really nice e-meeting you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was really cool to get the opportunity to talk to Adrian. If you're having issues with recall, loose lead walking, or just keeping your dog focused on you, then don't forget to download the free engagement guide, which is at www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. And of course, as always, you can get the show notes for this episode over at nickbenger.com slash adrian hyphen wisock. And if you have a few moments to leave a review of this podcast, I would hugely appreciate it. Thank you.